Welcome, guys. Glad, delighted that you're with us. If you're a, a guest with us, we're glad you're here, taking time out of a busy time of year to, to be with us. Um, very busy time of year. How many are done with their Christmas shopping? Everybody? Ah, that's not many. Not many. You guys got some work to do. <laughs> How many are done with their wrapping? Oh, not many again. I was Last service, everybody was, and I got carried away. I told them I hated them because I still got a lot of... I still got a lot of wrapping to do, but um, no, we're glad. We're glad. And just by way of, uh, if you're still straining, chomping at the bit, what do I get that special someone in my life? I can't seem to come up with the perfect gift. Um, could I suggest something? Uh, it's a little bit pricey, but it's the gift of a lifetime. Uh, this coming May, uh, Janine and I are helping to lead along with... Uh, a good friend, Charlie Dyer of Grace Life Ministries. We're helping to lead a trip to Israel from the 14th to the 16th. So I just thought I'd throw that out there in case you're wondering what to buy that special someone, you know. Uh, it's only $39.95, right? <laughs> That's not $39. It's uh, $3,900 and 95 more. Um, but again, the trip of a lifetime uh, if it's something you guys think you might be interested in, we have 35 people uh, already paid and going, uh, but we've got room. We've got room for five to eight more. So um, we would love to have you join us. End of commercial. We've been looking at, from Isaiah 9-6 over the last um, four or five weeks, we've been looking at uh, the names that Isaiah uses uh, when he talks about the coming Messiah. His name will be Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And we've covered those. And Pastor Jason has asked me to talk a little bit this morning about the last one, Prince of Peace. And uh, my favorite name for Jesus. His, own, his favorite name for himself was Son of Man, but my favorite for him is Prince of Peace. Father, uh, open our eyes, would you, as we look uh, to your word. And as the psalmist says, may we behold wonderful things from your word, and may we be different people because we came. Amen. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite name. My favorite name for him is Prince of Peace. And I just want to look quickly uh, at a couple of things that are true about the Prince of Peace and the coming of the Prince of Peace. First of all, number one, the Prince of Peace is the perfect God-man. Um, we refer to this as the, the incarnation, right? Um, Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union, uh, but it is the, tr the, the incomprehensible to us truth that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, and Isaiah talks about this. Uh, my, one of my seminary profs used to say this about the incarnation. He says, in the incarnation, the God of the universe stepped across the stars, took on human flesh, and became a man in the person of of Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that. The God of the universe condescended to step across the stars, take on human flesh, and become one of us. What an amazing truth, incredible truth. And in Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah talks about it. Notice what he says. He says, for unto us a child is born. This is talking about Christ's humanity. He was truly a human child. Perfect sinless humanity is what 
Isaiah is pointing at. But not only, for unto us a child is born, not only is he perfect, sinless humanity, unto us a son, capital S, is given. He is also undiminished deity. God in the fullest sense in every way. What an amazing thought that, that the God of the universe takes on human flesh and becomes one of us. How does that work? We'll never know. This side of heaven, at least, we'll never know. But it's, an, but it's a wonderful truth, an absolutely wonderful truth. And, you know, as you begin the new year, I would like, for by speaking for myself, to know more of what some people refer to as the, the presence of Christ in my life, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. See, we come to church on Sunday. We're aware of God's presence often when we're here. Uh, hopefully through the worship time and the message, God speaks to our heart, and we're aware then of him and who he is, and we're aware of his presence with us. But so many times we go through the days, don't we? Uh, sometimes weeks on end, months on end. And aside from experiencing his presence on, in church on Sunday, or maybe uh, if you have a, a quick devotional time in the mornings or um, when you read but I, I, speaking for myself, I'd like to know more of him with me. Um, just for a quick verse that we're looking at Isaiah already. Isaiah says something else that's really good. In Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, notice this. He says, Lord, you will keep him in perfect peace. Do we have that slide? No. Uh-oh. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Lord, you will keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. I'd like to be able in 2020 to stay my mind more on the person of Jesus Christ. Not just on Sundays, not just uh, when we maybe pray at meals or if you have a quiet time, but all day long. All day long. Because as somebody who struggled my entire life with anxiety, and I have, I have discovered this since I became a believer in my 20s. I've discovered that I can either be anxious, sometimes really anxious, <laughs> or, or I can be focused. I can stay my mind on the Prince of Peace. But I've discovered I can't do both. You've got to do one or the other. Try focusing completely on Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you and the fact that he, is, he has promised to be with you every minute of every day. Try to focus on that and worry at the same time. You can't do it. One or the other, but you can't do both. I want to do more of focusing on Jesus, of staying my mind on him. I love what um, one old uh, pastor theologian wrote about this. He says, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of daily life and external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a more profound level, we may also be in prayer, adoration, song, and worship and have a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. I like that. And what he's saying is, 
when you get up from your daily time, your, you know, your time with God, and I hope you have a time, even if it's something as simple as our daily bread, most of us know what this is, right? Even if it's something as simple, our daily bread is one quick page. It's like two paragraphs, literally, in a scripture reading. So if you start off with that, let that focus your mind on, or let that be, at least initially, stay your mind on him, but then we want to take that with us as we go through our day. It makes all the difference in the world, guys. He, he actually goes on to say, and I like this, that it, it's frustrating. It can be frustrating when you first start it. And he says, the first days and weeks of cultivating this discipline are awkward and sometimes painful, but enormously rewarding. Awkward because it takes constant vigilance and effort and reassertions of the will at the first level. Painful because our lapses are so frequent. The intervals when we forget him are so long, but rewarding because we have finally begun to live. Jesus said, I am with you sometimes. Did he? No. I am with you always. So he, he's never unaware of our presence. The question becomes, how aware are we day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, how aware are we of his presence with us? Make it a goal to cultivate in 2020 the discipline of experiencing the felt presence of God in your life. You will be glad you did. And that's just a little sidebar, stocking stuffer, end of parenthesis. So the Prince of Peace is, number one, he's the perfect God-man, and he's worthy of our contemplation 24-7, 365. Secondly, the Prince of Peace came at the perfect time. Pastor Jason talked uh, last week a little bit about uh, this verse of Paul's in Galatians chapter 4. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Notice that those four words, fullness of the time. Uh, if you're looking at an NIV, it might say at the set time. God sent his son. Uh, some other versions say at the perfect time, God sent his son. But the, and the idea is God planned this, guys. Jesus didn't just appear at a time in history uh, without, without God's total intentionality being, being on it. <laughs> he appeared at the perfect time because there were, there were events, there were people there were things that God wanted to do through his son. And so it has to jive with all those other events that are going on. It's a good thing that God is omniscient, isn't it? He, not, he knows everything. That's what omniscient means. God knows everything. But think about this. He not only knows all things that are, he knows all things that are possible. And he knows them simultaneously and eternally. Try to wrap your mind around that one. But he planned this, and, and, and at the perfect time, at the set time, at the appointed time, God sent his son into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I can remember back um, when I was in high school, 
a, initially it was called a, a rock concert, or a, I'm sorry, a rock opera. It was called a rock opera, and it evolved into a Broadway play. It was called Jesus Christ Superstar. Anybody old enough to remember that? Yeah, oh, look at that. I'm not the only one. Yeah, it came out. I can still remember that song uh, through my junior and senior year playing uh, on the radio, you know, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. But in that rock opera, the, the writer of it, and his name escapes me right now, it's not really important, but he makes this observation. He says, you'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? You see what he's saying? It's kind of presumptuous on the face of it, isn't it? There's a guy uh, telling God he didn't know what he was doing as far as the timing of sending his son. But he's saying, why'd you send him at such a such a backward time. And you know what? I, I, can, I can see what he's saying because I run, I've had people say to me as a pastor over the years, you know, how am I supposed to really get to know and worship a God named Jesus who, who, who was born thousands of years ago? That's ridiculous. No. No, it's not. God's timing's perfect. It's always perfect. And God knew, guys, God absolutely knew that there were a few things that were essential to spreading the message of his son's arrival. One of them, number one, is a common language, a common tongue. There had been, and, we, and there was no common tongue since the Tower of Babel. Languages were, were a very real, real barrier in the ancient world, much more so than they are today. And so, we know that, uh, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, it says that God raises up kings and he deposes kings. He puts kings on the throne, and when he's done with them, he takes them off the throne. He, in other words, he uses them for his own purposes. And in the middle of the 4th century B.C., God raised up, a, a young man was born that, uh, by history, uh, is known as uh, Alexander III of Macedonia. We know him better as Alexander the Great. He was born in, I think, I want to say 352 or 353 B.C., 4th century B.C., and he grows up to become a king. And his goal as king is he wants to conquer the known world of his day. Now, God decides to humor Alexander and let him realize his goal. Alexander does, in fact, conquer everything from uh, the Greco-Macedonia area, all the way to the borders of India and even slightly into India. He conquers the world. But there's another verse I love. It's Proverbs 21 and verse 1. Proverbs 21 one says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. So Alexander's accomplishing what he thinks he's on earth to accomplish. But what God really wanted to accomplish through Alexander was to spread a common language. See, Alexander spoke what's known as Koine Greek, and Koine is a Greek word that just means common. Alexander spoke common Greek, and by the time he had conquered the known world, common Koine Greek became the standard language of the entire later on to be Roman Empire. It was the common tongue. You could cross borders if you, uh, if you crossed from, uh, from Israel, where Hebrew 
was spoken. If you cross from Israel into Turkey, uh, Turkish was spoken. Or if you cross from Israel into Syria, uh, a Syrian tongue was spoken. But guess what? They all, also, they all also spoke, or most of them spoke common Greek, Koine Greek. So the first thing that God wants in place for the arrival of his son in this perfect time, this perfect moment, is a common language. And it's there by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. The second thing that God wants is an effective mode of spreading the language. You see, there was no, uh, there was no way to travel without great hazard and great risk uh, in the ancient world until until the Romans came to power in the late 4th century B.C., and, the, and they started building roads, Roman roads. The very first road ever built uh, was called the Appian Way, and the Appian Way uh, went from Rome in a uh, southeasterly direction um, to the port city of Brindisi, and Brindisi is on the Adriatic coast, the eastern coast of Italy, 300 miles of road begun in 312 B.C., but they didn't stop there. By the way, the Roman, ro the Roman technology in building roads was superior. Um, I mentioned in the first service that uh, for the first 20 years of my working life, I built roads for a living. That's what I did. Uh, and I looked at what the Romans did to build roads. And the first thing you need is, um, uh, is a solid base for the road. And what I mean by solid, a solid base for the road overall, because some, some ground, especially where I grew up on the shore of the Jersey coast, uh, is pretty spongy. So you've got to rip all that out, and you've got to put in uh, a mixture of sand and stone, which we called gravel, and you've got to coat it with gravel, maybe a foot thick, roll it out, you know, compact it nice and tight. Then you put what we call our blend. We called it was just an acronym for rock blend. It's basically different forms of crushed stone, crushed concrete, uh, and then you spread uh, six or eight inches of that and compact it very hard. And then, in my world at least, I would put three to four inches of hot asphalt on top and roll it. And that's a nice, smooth, finished road. But guess what? My roads would last, without maintenance, without replacement, maybe 50 years, maybe 40 years, depending on the climate. The Roman roads are still there. Many of them, many of them are still there. And between 312, when the Appian Way was built, and the end of the first century, the Romans built approximately 50,000 miles of road. Imagine that, 50,000. So you could literally try, and, and on both sides of the Mediterranean, the north side and also the south side across northern Africa and into Egypt, but you could travel fairly safely because they didn't just build roads. About every 20 miles, there was an inn or a Motel 6. Back then, I think it was called Motel Sixtus. But the idea was there was a place to stay, and the Romans also policed their roads. There was a portion of the Roman army that was dedicated to making sure that uh, the travelers were not harassed or killed or robbed by uh, highwaymen, as they were known, you know, by thieves. And I don't think it was perfect, but there was a police force policing all this stuff. They also had, at strategic places like tunnels and bridges, 
they also had? Can you, they had somebody there to do something. Can you guess what it is? And from New Jersey, I know what it is. Yes, thank you, Ken. Absolutely. You got to collect tolls. You can't let people travel for free. Got to maintain all this stuff. Yes, they collected tolls. And, but listen, guys, 23 2,000 to 2,300 years later, many of those, and aqueducts, they built aqueducts to carry water all over the place. If you come to Israel with us, you'll see one that was built in the second century. I, I walked on it. I followed it. Uh, if, you, if you go from Jerusalem down to Jericho, uh, I followed it. It begins at a place called Ein Kilt and goes all the way to Herod's ancient palace. For, for nine miles, you can walk along this aqueduct, which is about, you can jump across it, it's about five, four to five feet across, and it's about three to four feet deep, and the water is three to four feet deep running through it, and guess what? It's been running through there since the second century. The Romans built it. Here's my point in, in, in emphasizing all this. It wasn't just a road system in the crude sense. It was very sophisticated. The technology that the Romans used was not replaced until the 19th century. They were literally 2,000 years ahead of their time in building roads, bridges, tunnels. And they're still there. So everything that God wanted was in place. It was there. And when his son comes, there's a common language and there's also a common mode of transporting or sharing, traveling with the message, the greatest message of all time. You know, the, uh, the verse that I mentioned from Jesus Christ Superstar said, you'd have managed better if you had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? The next verse says, if you'd come today, you could have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Well, if you mean by mass communication, they didn't have television, they didn't have radio, they didn't have computers, they didn't have phones, they didn't have satellites. Yeah, okay. They didn't have electronic communication the way we do today. They didn't have mass communication, but they had mass transit, a system for mass transit. If we define mass transit as the ability to move people effectively and safely from one place to another, that was intact for the first time in human history when Jesus Christ was born. Actually, the finishing touches were still being put on it when Jesus was born. So everything, the common language... The effective mode of transportation was all in place. Can I give you another little stocking stuffer? We're talking about the Prince of Peace. We all want peace, don't we? Especially Christmas is a great reminder, if nothing else, of the fact that we want peace in our own lives. Can I just tell you, and I think Jason would agree with me on this as a pastor, one way that I see that Christians particularly deny themselves peace is by something that I refer to as incongruent behavior. <laughs> incongruent behavior. And all I mean by that is, for those of you who are believers in Christ, for those of you who are Christians, you know, for the most part, how you should live. But the, tr the truth is, we all have these areas where we, where we think God understands. We know, know it's probably something we shouldn't be doing, but God kind of understands. No, he doesn't. For example, if you're, if you're a single Christian, or maybe single again, 
and you're involved in sexual immorality. That is incongruent behavior. And listen, it will produce stress in your life. <laughs> It'll produce stress in your life because you have the Spirit of God living in you if you're a believer, and you know it's wrong, and it's going to eat at you because it's wrong, so you're denying yourself peace. Suppose you're a Christian businessman or businesswoman, and you're doing well. You're doing well. But every year in March or April, you got a way to fudge the books a little bit when it comes to income tax time. Just cheat a little bit on your income tax. That's incongruent behavior, guys. And it will produce, you know it's wrong, you do it anyway, and that produces stress automatically. And whatever you might think you're getting out of this particular sin, and I'm not, guys, I'm not talking about the kind of things that we all do day by day uh, unintentionally. You know, a slip of the lip, um, a bad decision that as soon as you've done it, oh gosh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what I refer to as sin on the calendar, okay? Stuff we know we're going to do. When you do it, it produces stress. And whatever you think, whatever benefit you think you're getting from doing this thing, I guarantee you that the benefit is not worth anything near as much as the peace you're forfeiting. So make it a policy in 2020. You know what? No more sin on the calendar. <laughs> I, do, I do enough sinning inadvertently without intending to, without planning it and putting it on the calendar. End of parenthesis number two. That's your stocking stuffer. The Prince of Peace is the perfect God-man. He came at the perfect time. And number three, he is the perfect Christmas gift. He himself is the perfect Christmas gift. He's the Prince of Peace, and we all want Peace. Watch this video quickly, if you would. I would have to say world peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. Everybody wants world peace. And I hate to be the bearer of tidings, guys, but guess what? As far as the world is concerned, there will never be world peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Then and only then will the words of, again, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 come true. Then and only then will the wolf lie down with a lamb and the leopard lie down with a goat. Then and only then will the lion eat straw with the oxen. Then and only then will the child play by the cobra's hole and the little child by the viper's nest. There will never be world peace until the Prince of Peace returns. But, but, that doesn't mean you and I can't have true peace in our hearts through the Prince of Peace. You see, that baby born in Bethlehem's manger grows up, lives a perfect, sinless life, and offers himself as a sacrifice on Calvary's cross to pay for your sin and my sin. How much of it? All of it. From the cradle to the grave, from the womb to the tomb, every sin you'd ever commit in your life is paid for. 
by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the Bible says at the minute you believe that in your heart, at that moment, God gives you eternal life as a free gift, and you will never, ever perish. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose we're friends, and you decide you get a great idea for a Christmas gift that you know I would like to have. It's taken a lot of thought, a lot of planning, and even, even a fair bit of money. But this is something you know that I'm really going to want and need. So you bring it, and you're all excited. You bring it Christmas Eve. You stop by my house, and you give me the gift. And you say, this is something I've, I've really wanted to give you. And Merry Christmas. And I say, oh, thanks. That sounds great. You know, um, let me put it over here under the tree with the rest of the gifts. So I take it over, and I, I put it under the tree with the rest of the gifts. And, you know, we, we talk, we make small talks, we visit, and, and you leave. And I don't get to see you again until March. In March, you come back and you visit me, and we're talking. You say, by the way, I never heard from you. What did you think of the gift? And I say, oh, my gosh, I, I just got so busy after Christmas. I, uh, I, I didn't open it Christmas morning. We were exchanging family gifts, and, and Janine put it in the closet. And I hate to say it. I'm ashamed to say it, but I never opened it. How do you think you'd feel? <laughs> you were so excited. You, you planned so much to give me this, and I couldn't even take the time to open the gift? And you know what? That's a picture of the fact that a lot of Christians, and maybe some of you here, have been celebrating Christmas after Christmas after Christmas, year after year after year, maybe decade after decade, and you've never opened the gift. God sent you a gift 2,019 years ago, the perfect gift, the gift that you literally can't live without, and you haven't opened it. Can I make a suggestion? This year, before you bother putting up a tree, before you decorate it, before you put any lights on the house, before you wrap any gifts for anybody else, open the gift you can't live without. Open the gift that God sent you, the gift of the Prince of Peace. It will make all the difference in the world. Janine and I, um, when I first got out of seminary, we moved back to New Jersey, and we planted a little church on the coast of New Jersey. It's still going, uh, Pinelands Community Church. And I used to have what, what we referred to as the gospel in a nutshell, and this is, what, this is what it said. By dying on the cross for my sins, Jesus Christ has done everything, notice this in capital letters, that God requires for me to have eternal life, for me to be a member of his forever family, to, for me to know that I'm going to heaven when I leave this world. And the word everything was supplied by the audience. Would you guys give me a little deja vu? I'm going to recite it. Would you guys do the, the capitalized part? By dying on the cross for my sins, Jesus Christ has done Everything. that God requires for me to have eternal life, for me to be a member of his forever family and to know that I'm going to heaven when I leave this world. It's that simple, guys. It really is. It's that simple. The old hymn says it this way, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. 
I pray that this Christmas, if you've never opened the gift of gifts, that you'll open it and that this will be the greatest Christmas ever. Father, thank you for your word. Would you apply it to the hearts of your people? Make it real, make it relevant, make it life-transforming for Jesus' sake. Amen.